the Lasting Damage Fund, it's crucial, it's fundamental for all the most affected people and countries to repay for both the physical damage and the moral damage. This is Sofia Passotto from Italy. She's a climate activist working with Fridays for Future, a climate justice non-profit organization. The crucial fund Sofia is talking about is a new worldwide loss and damage fund. It will provide financial assistance to developing countries severely affected by climate change, much of it caused by richer countries. This fund, it's basically the rich countries saying, we've been polluting, we've been emitting for years and years and years and decades, and now we are actually acknowledging that. The Loss and Damage Fund was established in November 2022 at the United Nations Climate Conference, the COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. It was a culmination of decades of pressure from climate-vulnerable developing countries. This time, their efforts paid off. And finally, the fund is becoming a reality. In this episode, we take a closer look at the fund and its importance. What will it take to implement the agreement? How can rich countries like the Nordics ensure the money needed for the fund is raised? And what role will climate activists and civil society play now that there is a commitment to establish the fund? I'm Josefine Volkwarts, and I'm delighted to be your new host on the Nordic Talks podcast. First thing that comes to mind, of course, uh, it's a huge uh, win that we uh, we got this fund or that um, the people most affected maybe will receive money from it. This is Frederick Roland Sandby. He heads up the Danish NGO Klimabevægelsen, in English, the climate movement. Along with Sophia, he's participating in this Nordic Talks event held in Copenhagen and arranged by Oxfam IBIS, the Danish member of Oxfam International, which is a global movement working to end the injustice of poverty. According to Frederick and Sophia, the establishment of the fund is not only important to achieve climate justice, it's also an important step because it takes a broader look at the negative impacts of climate change, including extreme weather events like hurricanes and flooding, phenomena often affecting poorer countries in Africa, for example. I hope you can hear me. Can you hear me? Happy Itro Sanga, a climate activist from Tanzania, joins the talk online. In her country, they know the consequences of the climate crisis all too well. We had a woman who was one of the people who were the victims in the Kilwa floods that happened two years ago. And this lady lost six of her children because of floods. She only has two. She had eight of them, but then six were were gone. They died because of the floods. And the two, the only two, you know, the only two kids that are remaining, she's, you know, trying her best in order to, you know, to help them grow, but also to go to school and all that stuff. But then she lost a lot of things, including her house. She had to start over and all the stuff that had been happening, but also psychological torture. Happy has been part of different youth movements working to solve societal challenges since 2014. And today she is the vice president of the University of Dar es Salaam Students' Government, 
representing more than 30,000 students. She's far from satisfied with the help provided so far. From the 24,000 people who were affected, only 11,000 were able to be, you know, to be able to cater for and compensate it. Happy points to the fact that the severe impacts of climate change are becoming more frequent and more intense, and that they are causing more damage and loss of life. Therefore, greater resources are required to respond and rebuild. The Loss and Damage Collaboration is a group of climate researchers and activists from both the global north and south. They estimate that around 200 million people in developing countries are critically affected by extreme weather events each year. In 2022 alone, 29 climate disasters were recorded around the world. And the new Loss and Damage Fund is an opportunity to help vulnerable developing countries build resilience. And this is desperately needed in countries like Tanzania. As far as we talk about the loss and damage, we are talking about the compensation that people are given, psychological, material-wise, the support, that's what we need. The historic decision to establish the Loss and Damage Fund is welcomed all over the developing world. But there's still a long way to go. The success of the fund will depend on how quickly it gets off the ground and whether it will be up and running from 2024 as is the plan. Sophia is cautiously optimistic. It is crucial. It's a crucial step. But there has to be like a concrete and precise roadmap. Because so far we have the institution of the fund. So we have, yes, the fund has been decided. But there is no like strict deadline or there is no like steps that have to be taken. You know, we have the 2024 deadline uh, for the mechanism to be kind of implemented. Happy correct me if I'm wrong in case. But we have the 2024 as deadline so far uh, for the mechanism to be completed. We, we're not saying who is going to pay. We're not saying how much uh, countries are going to pay. We're not saying who are the countries that are going to benefit from this fund, besides saying the most affected countries. Over the next year, representatives from 24 countries will work together to decide what form the fund should take. They'll also decide which countries should contribute and where and how the money should be distributed. Frederick agrees that this is an important first step, but he's careful about celebrating too soon. When we look at uh, how uh, funds have been uh, channeled to um, developing nations uh, prior, so the money that we promised that we'd uh, deliver, um, well, we either we haven't delivered the money or we've just taken it from money we already had uh, allocated to these uh, countries. And I'm, I'm worried that the same will, will happen here. Um, because, well, when you, when you celebrate as much as, as you do here with the, with the, with the loss and damage fund, uh, of course, this has to be new and additional, um, like it had to be in, in the past as well, right? Uh, but, um, but I'm worried that it's not going to be, mm. you know? And I'm worried it's just going to be another uh, moving around the same money. Well, maybe this time the promises will be kept. But there were critical voices at COP27 saying that the discussion about the fund took attention away from the general fight against climate change. Was there enough focus on what needed to be done to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases? And did the countries do enough to keep the temperature rises below the 1.5 expected by the Paris Agreement? 
Well, Frederick says yes and no. There is a fundamental flaw in, in the cops. Um, it's the lowest uh, denominator that decides on the ambition, levels of ambition. And, um, well, this uh, lowest denominator is just very, uh, not, not very ambitious. So, um, so I'm not sure that was the reason why we didn't get more reductions. Uh, but, but I must say, like, the, the biggest thing that I'm taking from this COP, of course, is that uh, we had last year uh, even our own Minister of uh, Climate And he celebrated when COP26 was ended. He said, we've, we've kept 1.5 alive. Uh, next year, everyone is going to deliver more. They're going to they're gonna show that, you know, we're keeping 1.5 alive. And then just, you know, this, this COP27 um, is, is through and, and we didn't get that, you know? Like, and and I'm, I'm not sure why, why, is, why isn't anyone talking about this, right? Because if last year they tried to keep 1.5 alive and they haven't done anything in particular to, to do that this year, what does that mean for the 1.5 degree target? Like, uh, what does that mean for our discussion on all this, right? The, the fact that it's in the text, you know, we've we got to keep, keep 1.5 uh, alive. Still, we cannot mention uh, fossil fuels in, in the same text, you know? It's like the, the contributor, the main contributor to climate change cannot be mentioned in this text. And then they, you know, they do this with the 1.5 as well. Like, it all just shows that there is, there is a big farce going on. Like, if you cannot mention uh, the, actual, the actual reason to why climate change is destroying homes and nations, you know, how are we no. ever going to prevent uh, that From her position as an activist, Happy doesn't see a conflict between the establishment of the fund and the general climate ambitions. I think the struggle continues because a lot is happening as far as COP27. Still, the fossil fuel um, wasn't really... I remember last year they recognized it, but then, you know, some of the companies are still continuing to invest in fossil fuels, of which, at the end of the day... Um, You know, the temperature is going to rise because we're investing in something that is not right for the environment. So I think it's something that is still cliche. We talk about it, but also the COP27 comes together and they speak about it. But then behind the curtains, a lot of investment of fossil fuels still goes to the environment and the communities. But something else that is still shocking us is that the big companies that are, you know, investing in fossil fuels were also part of COP27, which is something that, I don't know how to term it, but then I think it's something that is not right for the whole community. And if they continue to like silence us by telling us, you know, we are the sponsors of COP27, you know, we are, you know, this, maybe it's not even COP27, but any other COP that is going to come and they're like, you know, we're sponsoring this event and we're going to bring a lot of climate activists to speak about this and that. And then at the end of the day, they continue investing in fossil fuel that at the end of the day is going to cause a lot of floodings, a lot of drought, a lot of extreme weather event, temperature rise, and then people dying. What are we doing? I think it's something that is, you know, behind the curtain is not right. It's like we are saying this thing and then behind the curtain we are doing something else. But if we totally, totally do it, I mean, if we hold the government accountable, but also hold the countries that are responsible, especially those that are investing in fossil fuels responsible, then we're going to reach the 1.5, 100%. I believe in that. Sophia agrees that governments have a key role to play in putting pressure on big companies. When we talk about big companies, we underestimate the role that, for example, loss and damage, uh, a loss and damage fund has on these companies. Because something that I've learned recently is, um, for example, how this kind of fund could go, uh, could help the whole world 
towards the green transition. Um, so basically, the lost and damaged fund would say, okay, you pollute a lot, you emit a lot, you state. Uh, what can you do in order to make up for it? So the state says, okay, so these are the activities that emit a lot in my territory. Uh, I have to pay for what I have emitted in the past four decades. So I'm going to pay that. I'm going to allocate some money. Me, as the government, I'm going to see what are the activities that pollute the most. At the top, the top is like burning fossil fuels, is investing in fossil fuels uh, research, in extractions and stuff like that. And the government, of course, will not want to pay more because of these companies. So the government will say, hey, you know, you have to start shifting. You have to start transitioning. And the companies, therefore, will start this kind of green transition. And all of this is because of, for example, the loss and damage fund. According to Frederick, this approach is already possible in the Nordics, for example, in Denmark. The best way to, to look at that um, issue would be to where do we find the, uh, like the legal uh, opportunities to do that. And I think the, uh, the climate law that we gained in 2019 like, kind of sets um, up the framework because uh, it says that we in Denmark has to make policy uh, in regards to our historical uh, responsibilities, right? And, uh, well, we do have a lot of um, businesses and, of course, well, everyone, the government as well, uh, who, um, uh, who has a lot of historical responsibility. So one way could be to uh, introduce a tax because of that. And this would be a way to ensure that the whole of the EU makes progress. We can um, put pressure on the EU, uh, but the easiest way to put pressure on the EU is by pressuring uh, the Danish government, right? So that, that's, that's our aim. And as an activist, that should be our goal, right? It should be to hold our own um, government responsible. So, it will be positive if every government around the world makes an effort. It will also be important for governments to agree on what should be done. Some critics say that the annual UN Climate Conference, or the COPs, are not the most effective way to push action forward, since everyone must agree on the final text. To a certain extent, Sophia agrees. The COPs are very complex processes and I think you cannot say they work or they don't work. It's a year-long event kind of that sets some kind of example. It's a way to just put people together from basically the whole world. You put it together and you force them to kind of have a dialogue. Uh, cops are not binding so we cannot expect them to be efficient, like efficient, completely ex efficient. Uh, but I think they are important because otherwise, in my opinion, there would be the Western world that would just rule on the Southern country, you know? Um, so rich countries just keeping, just exerting their power and keeping uh, the South of the world under their control. Um, and that would be just, you know, rich countries talking to each other in, a, in kind of a circle if there were no cops. At cops, um, you know, Tanzania and Italy have on paper the same weight 
on paper. But at, of course, we cannot uh, pretend that they have different weights uh, when they are cops. Um, so I think it's a good uh, example of an arena where you can have a constructive dialogue, but we cannot expect it to be binding. Because if I could have like one wish in my life of like utopic thing would be to have kind of a court that just implements um, green policy. It would be just like a court that says, hey, you did not respect the Paris Agreement, mm. so now you pay or something like that. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, I think it's just like we cannot, I cannot see the world in black and white. Um, mm. There's a lot, of, a, a lot of colors in there and cops just kind of give us a hint of what could be. Even though Frederick is not a big fan of the COP process, he does see some positive things in it. To an extent, uh, the COP has done something uh, something right with the Paris Agreement, setting up the, the, the target that globally we need to, to reach. Um, we can all see that we're not doing that, but, but I guess uh, in a way uh, making sure that we speak the same language uh, somehow, it does help. Um, but um, the most important thing I, I think the COP process uh, enables um, is with the, uh, well, it, it makes it transparent uh, what countries uh, do what and, and who does not because, uh, because of the uh, nationally determined contributions. So um, all the nations have to say, we're doing this much or we're do not doing uh, a lot. Um, and that just makes it very transparent. Who's, who's to blame? here. Happy agrees that transparency has a positive impact on governments, including her own government in Tanzania. Right now, a lot of people are coming up, a lot of people are speaking about it. And there has been some kind of, you know, a lot of barriers going through it. So we are hoping for the best that as much as climate activists come together, civil society organization, different international national organization coming together to speak about this, then at least we can have some kind of strategy. At first, what was, you know, challenging us is that the, the community in my country did not have, um, you know, information regarding climate justice. And this is a challenge because most of the people, especially people in the rural areas, like where I'm, I'm staying right now in region sorry so much we do not have electricity this is the impact of climate crisis guys so it's it's real it's really happening in our place so some of the people here did not have um, knowledge or do not even know what climate crisis is and they do not know who to hold accountable and how they can do it so one of the best things that we do is like to educate them but also to enlighten them that this is what is happening and we need to hold accountable the government but also the people in global north so I think for us to be able to really explore but also to be able to tackle that in a 360 dimension, especially the fossil fuel industry in the country, first, people have to be empowered with knowledge. Like, you know, this is what is happening. So in, and the, the cause of all the floodings, all the victimization that is happening, losing property, displacement, women being highly affected by the crisis is because of, you know, activities that we are doing, including investing in fossil fuel. So we need to hold the government accountable in order to, you know, in order to uh, mitigate and adapt, but also to, you know, fight against the climate crisis. This brings us back to each of us as individuals. What can we do to fight climate change and further climate justice? Let's hear from Sophia. 
So we have a huge responsibility as individuals to act less individually and more collectively. And I think uh, the most powerful actions to make a difference across countries, let's say, are uh, voting within the country, one's own country, you know, voting for governments that are sensible. And so by voting, we also set the agenda, not only nationally, but internationally, you know, because we send out people to conferences, we send out people to having this kind of bilateral or, or multilateral agreements across countries that can actually be examples of cooperation. So voting with a motive underneath, with a green motive underneath. He is happy. Everybody has an impact despite how small or big, but also the climate movement is interprofessional. It's not a movement for only climate experts and, and, and environmental experts. As much as we need them in the movement to help us understand, you know, all the statistics, the temperature rise and the fall and all that scientific knowledge we needed, but then each and every one of us has a role to play. Either you are an artist, you can still make songs, you can still make art that relates to, you know, climate movement. You are a psychologist, you can still help people that are dealing with, you know, climate anxiety. That is where we can play. Um, you can be a teacher, you can still continue to promote that education in your environment. You can also be somebody that is unemployed as well. It's also possible and very, you know, you can still use your free time to campaign it in the social media. You can still use all your resources that you have in order to you know, push the movement. Frederick agrees that we can all play a vital role in paving the way for change. Climate change leads to apathy. I feel it in my guts uh, when when COP ended here as well. I, 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 you know, it's just uh, it's it's horrible what's happening. Um, but uh, the thing that you should do and to to get rid of this apathy is just do something. Uh, and uh, and I'm not here to say you um, should do this or this because um, strictly speaking, we, we we have no idea what works. You know, it could be blocking a road somewhere. It could be mobilizing for the huge protests. But what I do know is that. Um, small amount of people makes a huge difference. Uh, 11 people started the big climate marches in Copenhagen uh, and a small girl um, started the uh, climate strikes in, in Sweden, right? So we, we have no idea what works, but uh, the important thing is just that we, you know, we go about doing something. So after all, Frederick, Happy and Sophia are hopeful that we can all do something to influence the fight against climate change. And they all say the agreement to create a loss and damage fund is historic. It's a turning point in acknowledging the huge inequalities within the climate crisis. For the first time in three decades, rich countries have committed to financing the recovery and rebuilding of poorer countries stricken by climate-related disasters. Nordic and other European nations have already pledged 300 million US dollars to the fund. And from 2024, the fund will be ready to function, ready to compensate for the climate damage suffered in developing countries. Do you want to organize your own Nordic Talks event? Then check out nordictalks.com slash producer. I'm Josefine Falkwarts. Thanks for listening.